The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. You hear that one? Yes. Did you hear what it was? Controlling the narrative. What boys. haven't we seen? Well, we've only seen boys. We have only seen young migrant boys in those shelters. Yes. What is that over her shoulder? Uh, is I that don't a know. picture of a little girl over her right shoulder? Do not tell is me. Is a picture, I think, is a little girl on the border. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another week, another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. If you've listened before, thank you for coming back. Thank you for being part of my small contribution to reform, to national security, to global security, to trying to leave a legacy of modernization, of modernity, of liberty, of freedom, ultimately of the defeat of Islamism and political Islam. I believe that as much as we try to keep America secure, it is simply a whack-a-mole program. Unless we breach the divide between East and West, unless the ideas of Western freedom start to push against, defeat, marginalize, and begin to bring critical thinking in Islam back and defeat political Islam. A lot to talk about this week. And for those of you new, I hope uh, you find that voice of reason that uh, you've been looking for. There is... First of all, let me start. I'm going to talk a little about Turkey today. I want to uh, get into uh, the so-called um, Islamophobia, if you will, and how they're trying to compare it to the new anti-Semitism, which it just pales. It's a, a absurd that that comparison is being done. A, a victory for Majid Nawaz against SPLC. We'll talk about that. And also whether ISIS has gone, done, as we've seen the uh, radicalization on the Internet, many doing high fives saying that the battle is over. So first, Ramadan. Last week we finished our holy month of Ramadan, the ninth month of the lunar calendar in the Muslim community. Our time for daily reflection, not only prayer, but from sunrise to sunset. We fast from all food and drink, even water. And in that spiritual cleansing, we seek atonement. We sought atonement for 30 days. And to my Muslim brothers and sisters, I hope and pray uh, last week that you had a blessed Eid al-Futr, the holiday of the feast, and that uh, your families became stronger, closer to one another, and that you reflected on the things that we need to prioritize in our legacy that we need to focus on and first things being first, if you will. And as you know, that's one of the main reasons I do this podcast is, gosh, you know, so much of today is lost in social media, chaos and noise. And we seem to miss the forest from the trees. We seem to miss the value of human conversation, of connection, of rational thought. And instead, Day to day, we cover so many things so deeply and emotionally exaggerated, if you will, 
a, a week away. It seems, I was just talking to someone yesterday and I said, can you believe it's only been seven days since President Trump was negotiating with North Korea? It feels like it's been two months. And that's because the news cycle is so obsessed with Trump derangement syndrome, with so many things in which the same story gets repeated, 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 rinse, cycle, repeat, rinse, cycle, repeat, and then the next day a new topic comes up and they do the same thing. So when you do that repeatedly ad nauseum 24-7, the topic six, seven topics ago appears to be eons ago versus the old news cycles that used to touch on some things significantly and others minor and some more thoughtful stories didn't used to have as deep an impression of an obsession, if you will. But in Ramadan, I have to tell you, every year personally, I think it ends up meaning more to me because as we get older, we wonder how much of the work, the devotion that we do actually changes what we leave behind. Uh, you see thoughtful people like Jordan Peterson and others coming to their own in social media and elsewhere because people are thirsty. People, uh, you know, as I thirsted day to day, I, I think, well, what do people need? And you see the thoughtfulness of his engagement of reality, of how he engages folks that are depressed, that, that might have familial communication problems and other personal and community issues, and it's done frankly, it's done without political correctness, but with an honesty, a genuineness, and a humility. And to me, that's what my fast was about this year. It was about trying to come to terms with a more realistic, a more honest, a more humble, and, and more forthright approach to who not only who I am, but what I want our work at the Muslim Reform Movement at the American Islamic Forum to be about. There's so many people doing great work out there. And, you know, I think in this Ramadan, I have to say I was also disappointed. I'm not sure what so many in the Muslim community are waiting for. Which month, which cycle, which year, which year will become that year in which they wake up to marginalize the tyrants, the the men with beards and robes who seem to dominate and, and want to manipulate our community. We're seeing more opening, I think, of times of opportunities in which groups like the SPLC that was that is a scam that has said that they're against hate and bigotry and yet it's all been about uh, it's all been about exaggerated partisanship, about a partisan far-left approach to demonize everything on the right in order to gain political one-upsmanship. Nothing about real bigotry, because if it really was, they would have stood behind folks like Majid Nawaz and not needed a lawsuit to then pay out over $3 million, which we'll talk about later. So in this Ramadan, I would ask you to, at the end now that we've finished and we're into the 10th month of Shawwal, ask your Muslim friends, what did they feel they're going to leave in a legacy behind, in ideas, in, in change, 
What are they doing to defeat the ideas of radical Islam? Yes, it was a quiet Ramadan as far as terrorism goes. It wasn't free from terrorism, but certainly we did not get attacked as we have in so many Ramadans before. As we see the spike in jihad that happens and the emotionalism and unfortunately pietistic Muslims like myself and others may become more humble, far more peaceful and quiet while others become more violent, their real streak of whoever they are. If they're good Muslims, they become better. If they're bad Muslims, they become worse. We didn't see as much this year, but does that mean ISIS is defeated? Does that mean the threat has gone away? I don't believe so. In the next segment, I want to talk to you about that threat. The Saudis have a Sakina program that they formed in 2003, and Sakina means calmness. And they claim that the, the decrease in social media activity means that they're winning, that they're succeeding, that the ISIS threat is going away. It's waning because of the new focus of the West and of the Arab world on radical Islam and on ISIS. Uh, that's not necessarily true. When we come back, we'll talk about, is ISIS, is radical Islam waning? Are only growing. This is Udi Jasser and Reform This. We'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. Listen carefully. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. There is no difference between a man and a woman. None. Zero. Got it. So if you were to put women in Stop. charge of... Just take it one at a time. Build a wall between that. <laughs> okay. We need more women in the workplace. Well, why? Do because you... it will be better. Do you think this country would be in the mess that it's in if it were run by women? Answer the question. I'm not going to ask you, you misogynist. <laughs> the Glenn Beck Program. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I did a uh, interview this week on uh, El Hurra, the uh, Middle East Broadcasting Company station in Iraq, Middle East, Syria, and We talked about whether ISIS is gone, whether ISIS has been defeated. The Saudis had begun to publicize that the traffic, the cyber war traffic has decreased significantly. And that means that the ideology is on the way out. And we talked about whether youth are more disaffected, less disaffected, or whether the defeat of ISIS means that the youth are beginning to come into their own. And they paired me against... A Saudi researcher who was obviously anti-ISIS, and, but an apologist for the Saudi regime. It was a fascinating discussion, but I think poignant to reform this in our program here, in my conversation with all of you, is, you know, we did the same mistake after 9-11. We, we talked about the war against Al-Qaeda. We went to Afghanistan. We're still there. We went to Iraq. We're still there. We said that regimes that were havens for radical terrorism, terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda would not be our friends, that we would get the radicals wherever they were, be it Yemen, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, in order to keep our country safe. 
15, 18 years later, where are we? The whack-a-mole program continues. And what I said on Al-Hurra this week was, there is no better, there is no better metaphor to the disaster that has been our counterterrorism policy than to look to the Saudis to tell us whether we have won or lost this war. To look to the Saudis to tell us that the ideology is on the wane because they look at traffic of ISIS. Traffic of ISIS has gone down because... ISIS, number one, its footprint in Syria is down significantly because President Trump allowed Secretary Mattis to unleash a counter-ISIS program on the ground and in the air in Syria. No thanks to the Russians, no thanks to the Assad regime that could have done that before, but really had no interest in fighting ISIS because their main enemy was the masses of Syria that they wanted to kill through a genocide and are still killing over 600,000 killed, over 10 million displaced, and the and the carnage of the killing machine that is the Assad regime continues, and the Russian regime. But the war and its many battles will continue. As much as ISIS may have waned, Salafi jihadism the ideology of backward, black-and-white, literalist Islamist law, Sharia law, the Islamic State identity, and its jihadi militancy, Salafi jihadism, continues to thrive. As we saw with President Bush, his little mission accomplished was about getting into Iraq and defeating Saddam Hussein. And now we're learning that it wasn't just Saddam Hussein that facilitated Al-Qaeda, it was the Iranians. The Shia militants that facilitated Hezbollah also provided, we just learned, which many people knew, have been talking about for many years, but few wanted to own up to it, thinking it was just a conspiracy theory. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's a fact theory that now the Iranians were not only complicit, they were directly aiding and abetting Al-Qaeda. So radical Shia militants of Khomeinis were ra- were aiding and abetting and facilitating the protection and the dissemination of Al-Qaeda and other Sunni militants because they drink from the same trough of the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. But now with the Saudis giving each other high fives about the reduction in radical terror ideology, this is the problem is that it is not just about ideology. It is not just about the groups. It is about ideology. And the Saudis uh, would love to have you believe that they're trying to to counter the militants, but it, to them it's all about means. As again I mentioned on Al-Hurra, it's fascinating that if you look at the court system in Saudi Arabia that adjudicates folks based on cutting the limbs of those who steal, of giving women a half, if, if any vote or, 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 or ability to witness and, and, and testify in a court, as they behead those who criticize the government, who are brought to adjudication, said that they're there for drug use, when in fact they're there because they were dissidents against the regime and against clerics. We see that in Jeddah, we see that in Riyadh, we see it across Saudi Arabia. And then you say, well, this is the Salafi jihadism. So Saudi Arabia is just a top-down, board of directors type Salafi jihadi state. They're not going to reform 
and begin to turn the tide against the ISISs of the world when in fact they are the primary trough, the font that spreads that cancer. Now they want to do it in a more organized way in which they proclaim alliances and allies with the West who buy their oil. But they haven't changed the underbelly, the foundation of the ideas from which the ISIS's of the world inspire, as the ISIS journal was about, inspire radical Islam. The Saudi military, at the end of the day, if it went to war, would be fighting a jihad. If they try to bring things back, they would not say, what would the Prophet Muhammad do in political science in 2018? They want to have political science the way it was in 630 CE. In 625 CE. They don't advance and modernize in political science. They want to be Salafis to bring it back exactly the way it was at the friends. Salaf means friends of the Prophet to bring it back the way it was in the 7th century. Now, were there some good aspects? Sure, I believe as a Muslim that the Prophet Muhammad's character was strong, was humble, was honest. But he was also a general. He was also the head of state. So to say that he was simply a pacifist belies Islamic history. So if Muhammad was alive today, I think he'd reject his own example in which he mixed his identity as head of state, head of military, and messenger of God. At the time, the Prophet Muhammad did not have an example anywhere in the world in which you could look at a secular democracy in the 7th century and say this is a better example of which to live. So there was either pagan society or a religious society. But now, as of today, we have Western democracies that have gone through many revolutions in which many of us have the blessing to live here. And we would say if the prophet were alive today, we believe, I believe, that he would reject theocracy Islamic identity society, Sharia-based legal systems, and rather embrace a more secular, modern technology of politic and legal system that allows a personal interpretation, a separation of personal legal theological traditions versus state republic-based, reason-based legal systems based in common Western law. But again, this is, I think, the problem with talking about defeating ISIS, defeating when you, when you engage governments that are still in the 7th century, that have not modernized their interpretation, that look upon themselves as the custodians of the mosque, custodians of all of Islam, that is a supremacist, fascist interpretation. The Saudis have a program they called Sakina. The Sakina program already, when it was analyzed after three years in 2006, when it started in 2003, had been proven to be a failure. Now, they said it was a success, but it was a failure in which 30%, if not more, of radicals that they had brought into the program had then recurred back to terrorism. And that's even Saudi data, which I don't even trust. I don't trust it because what is their definition of terrorist? Many of the judges that they engage to rule against these folks 
Remember, in governments like the Saudis, uh, many of the folks in prison are the honorable, moral, humble dissidents that believe in real freedom and individual thought that are critical of certain ideas that need to be criticized and need to be marginalized. So, again, I think the Saudis are playing a role. I'm not saying we should abandon our allies. But when you look at counterterrorism programs, ISIS may be on the decrease because of our military's approach, because of our significant increase in bandwidth and confronting radical uh, videos online, confronting Inspire publications, uh, etc. But that whack-a-mole will come up as Islamic Jihad. It'll come up as Jamaat Islamiyah. It'll come up as Al-Qaeda. That's coming back in the in the Arab Peninsula and Northern Africa and elsewhere because those are all the byproduct, the fruit, the poisonous fruit of Salafi Jihadism. And until we, as Muslims in the West, begin to confront Salafi Jihadism, you will never see an end to the inspiration of radical Islam. And this is why the Arab awakening was probably the only hope for this to ever happen because a society as chaotic as Iraq is, a society that has hundreds of newspapers, that has mosques competing against what is Islamic and what is not. Yes, there's sectarian divides. Yes, it has become fodder to Iran now and that's because of Obama's weakness and withdrawal, because of our lack of engagement in Iraqi society which is a different problem, but the decapitation of that government, the removal of Saddam Hussein, was the first opportunity in Iraq to begin to have true reformation and dissident thinking and critical thinking. So I would embrace chaos, I would embrace disruption, and ground up, not top-down, but ground up reform against Islamism, against Salafi jihadism. So don't be overly positive or overly complacent about the disappearance and waning of ISIS. Don't high-five one another because Salafi jihadism is spreading faster than ever. Ask the Indonesians who are seeing Islamism weaponized in their country as it moves in. Ask the Turks as the Turkish now are seeing the cult of Erdogan increase. Ask the Europeans who are beginning to do things some smart and others anti-democratic as they shut down some mosques, as they do other things that run against some of their own principle because of the threat of a separatist minority movement within their countries. When we come back, we'll talk about Turkey and what there is to learn from there. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. What is going on with Turkey? Again, when you talk about reform, when you talk about that conflict between East and West, not only geographically is Turkey located on that nexus between Muslim-majority countries and the gates of Vienna, as they're called, into Europe, but 
as a member of NATO, one would think that they are supposed to represent that transition, that modernization against Islamism. And since Erdogan's been in power, as he says about democracy, it is the train that he got on, and when he gets off, that's the end of the democracy. That's the only use for the train, is to get you to where you want to go, and then you get off, quote-unquote, according to President Erdogan, who now, who runs the AKP, the Muslim Brotherhood equivalent in Turkey, an Islamist, collectivist, theocratic party. And ultimately, that party is beginning to slowly ebb away at Turkish nationalism and use Turkish nationalism to bring back, to bring back caliphism, to bring back the Ottoman caliphism of Islamism that ruled the Muslim world for four or five hundred years. And with him, he's using a confrontation with Europe in order to rally his base, if you will. I was elated this week to, to hear that, thank God, Congress blocked the sale of F-35s to Turkey. The verbiage coming from Turkey alone, let alone what they've been doing ideologically, politically, and financially in the region has necessitated a complete switch in the way we treat them. Change them to antagonists? I don't know. While they were trying to get F-35s from us, they had talked about getting S-400 missiles from Russia, and they were proud of it. While they were spending billions on building mosques in Denmark, Austria, and elsewhere, their DNET program, their DNET agency is their religious affairs agency that controls the sermons in mosques around Turkey, controls the salaries of imams at every mosque. An issue that we, when I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, talked about a significant hampering of any concept of religious freedom in Turkey. The largest mosque in the United States today, ladies and gentlemen, the largest mosque in the United States today is outside Baltimore, funded by the Turkish Religious Affairs Agency, the DNET. Well, that outpost of an Islamist party in the United States, do you think it'll be critical of Erdogan? Will there be any speech, writing, sermons, critical of the Islamist movement in Turkey, of Ottoman history? of Middle East Islamist politics, of the Brotherhood, of Hamas? Do you think any of that will come on? Will there be any criticism of the OIC coming out of that mosque? No, it'll be an outpost of not only evangelical Islamism, like the Brotherhood, but this one's with a Turkish flavor, but it will be an infiltrating type weakening system against our own. Talk about immigration issues. That is an immigration that should have been stopped. And I'm not talking about the Turkish citizens that might be going, Turkish-American citizens that might be going to that mosque. I'm talking about the foreign financing. I'm talking about the immigrants that might be on visas that came to help build that mosque and finance it. Should be studied. The cult of Erdogan is a threat. And, and my main message to you is that why the heck 
why the heck is Turkey still in NATO? We should at least put them on warning status, have Europe and the rest of NATO move to have them expelled. I mean, we complain every day about the UN, and, and, and in the last segment I'm going to talk about the UN Human Rights Council. We complain every day about that, and that is something we have much less control of because they're not democracies. These are dictatorships and tyrannies that somehow have an equal vote as democratic countries, which is absurd. But NATO is, is European democracies and America and Canada. And somehow in their wisdom, granted when Turkey was secular and post-Ataturk, the AKP wasn't winning elections, but then in 2002 they won one. Around that year, I think, I'm guessing it was 2002. So they win that election, and things begin to change. Erdogan didn't change things right away because it would have been too obvious. But now 16 years later, he shifted rules. He shifted methods in which he was able to maintain power. And now we see the AKP has slid into being the cult of Erdogan. They have elections coming up soon. He calls elections whenever he finds himself weakening. And often there is a sham element to them. Yes, Turkey's a democracy, but there is a sham element to them because he knows how to steer not only the populist whims of the Islamists who are afraid at the repercussions if they lose power, but perhaps corruption at the polls, perhaps other aspects of real true corruption that might be compromising Turkey's remaining democratic elements, period. So the, the period of, of, of democracy may be ending in Turkey. At the minimum, we should expel them from NATO. Thank God we didn't sell them those F-35s. Thank God many Americans are beginning to wake up. I hope you wake up further to the building of the mosques. Erdogan said, the measures taken by the Austrian Prime Minister are, I fear, leading the world toward a war between the cross and the crescent. He said that in Istanbul. Obviously, the crescent is Islam. The cross he views as Europe's Christianity. So here's a guy whose demagoguery is constantly stoking religious wars. He uses that language to stoke and use it to, he said, they said they're going to kick our religious men out of Austria. Do you think we not react if you do such a thing? This means we're going to have to do something. And, you know, there are about 350,000 Turks living in Austria, including 117,000 Turkish nationals. So is Erdogan driving violence by these Turkish nationals? On June 24, Erdogan faces an election. And he's stoking religious fervor. He's stoking the division between East and West in order in order to respond at the time of the upcoming elections. Austrians are moving to ban Turkish officials from holding meetings in the country ahead of the polls. 
And I think this conflagration cannot be ignored, should not be ignored. Pay attention, folks. Austria, Turkey, the next few weeks to months are going to signal where we're headed. And I would tell you, as difficult as it might be, appeasement is not the way to approach theocrats, thugs, tyrants like Erdogan, who uses democracy, uses it as a sham in order to perpetuate his own dictatorial whims. So pay attention. Let's get them out of NATO. Let's expose the illegitimacy of their elections. Let's help reformers in Turkey. Look at uh, the work of um, Mustafa Akil. He's fantastic. His book on Islam and liberty would be a direction I'd love to see Turkey take. He's a bit hamstrung in talking against the government because he'd end up in jail. The so-called coup that happened a few years ago, many signs are that it was a sham. The Gulenists were blamed. And yet, in many ways, it was like a Reichstag fire that legitimized Erdogan imprisoning, torturing 20,000-plus professors in his university system, and including journalists and others. Wake up, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot happening in Turkey, and it is one of the primary battlefronts in this battle between East and West. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. They don't want the job. Yes. It's beneath them. Yeah. They don't want it. Uh, they don't want to yeah. come out and just work at, at a bottom-rung business. Right. They want to start where their parents are. So weird. Well, we, we've done this to them, you know, with the participation trophy and dumbing down curriculum and making sure that they understand they're special, no matter whether they're special or not. They're just special. Dude. Pat, Pat Gray. Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. You know, one of the things I wanted to end on this week was the Trump administration, Ambassador Haley in the UN, made a big move, criticized by, obviously, the, the folks on the left to... Uh, can never find a, an excuse not to apologize for uh, Islamist tyrants. And uh, Haley announced that the United States would be pulling out of the UN Human Rights Council. Secretary Pompeo lauded that and said that that was an idea that he not only concurred with, but wanted to make sure happened as he embarked on being a Secretary of State. Same thing with uh, Ambassador Bolton, now uh, National Security Advisor Bolton, head of the NSA, NSC, I'm sorry. So, what do we think about this? Should, I can see there's a rational discussion to be had, and the conversation is, well, should the United States have a seat at the table to hold governments that don't believe in human rights, that 
oppress their people, who are travesties against human rights, that even if they sit on that council, at least our presence there holds their feet to the fire. Now, Kofi Annan shifted the Human Rights Commission and the UN to the Human Rights Council. He abandoned the entire commission in 2006 and started a council thinking he could narrow who could be on it. At the time, the Bush administration said, you know what, we've had enough of this. We not only did not like the commission, but we're going to have nothing to do with the council. So the United States stayed off of it, and we were criticized at the time, obviously by the left. And then come President Obama in 2009, as he ignored the Green Revolution in Iran, as he gave away the farm in order at the altar of the nuclear deal to appease human rights disasters like Iran and Syria because he wanted everything to be handed at the altar of the nuclear deal and he said we could talk better with an open hand instead of the clenched fist of 2009. Fast forward nine years later and that open hand turned a blind eye to his red lines of chemical weapons. That open hand allowed billions to be used to, to, to fund genocide, to fund Hezbollah, to fund terror across the region, to allow them to be closer to nuclear armamentarium in Iran and elsewhere. So that did nothing. So I would tell you my position is to cheer to cheer our abandonment of the sham, the complete sham that is the UN Human Rights Council. My position is that appeasement doesn't get anywhere with countries like Saudi Arabia even, who's an ally, with countries like Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Congo, who are on that Human Rights Commission, Council, I'm sorry now, that have done nothing to change the way their countries act internally, and we end up always being on the defense. The Human Rights Council becomes then a platform for tyrants to tell the West why it's not about their anti-Semitism that they supposedly care about the Palestinians, when in fact, if they really did, they'd be talking about the tyranny that is Hamas. They'd be talking about the ideological oppression coming from the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, from the Salafi jihadist movements fueled by Saudi Wahhabism. But no, to them, the Human Rights Council is about lecturing Israel. We're out of the last few hundred positions and discussions coming out of that council. Almost half of them, if not 60%, had to do with Israel. And this week, we've seen others come out to do with our border issues, on and on. So to them, there's this moral equivalency, and the left is all too willing to give them that moral equivalency. That somehow the, that somehow the state of Israel protecting itself from surrounding tyrannies that are fueling terror groups, launching missiles into schools and into neighborhoods in, in Israel, then if Israel responds, that somehow becomes Israeli tyranny against Palestinians. You can have policy disagreements if you want, but to do it at the Human Rights Council is a sham. 
because countries that are the worst oppressors of women's rights, gay rights, the rights of religious freedom for those who are dissidents against these governments, who are imprisoned for their speech, who are imprisoned for speaking against a certain cleric or a certain government official and being told that they are apostates who have left their faith, being told that they are heretics or even blasphemers that deserve 10 years in prison or more, including a thousand lashes, or, or women in Iran that might wear a skirt up to their mid-shin instead of to their ankle that are tortured, whipped, or put in prison. So the Human Rights Council, it is a good day where the United States starts to be feared that our presence will only happen as Ambassador Haley said, when they achieve certain elements of reform within the way that you that UN Human Rights Commission, Human Rights Council functions. But it hasn't happened yet. And enough with that. If we're going to affect human rights, we're going to do it from outside the UN, as Ambassador Haley said, and not from within. And this theme I want to leave you with is exactly the way I approach reform. As an American Muslim that loves my faith, we lob it over folks that are all about demonization, about uh, collectivism of Muslims, about making us into victims, about soaking up our bandwidth with complaints about who it is to be Muslims, that somehow we are always the perennial victims. No, being Muslim is a diverse ideology. Islam is not one thing. It is a diverse interpretation of Quranic scripture and the Prophet's tradition in Sirah. There needs to be room for many interpretations. So when you look at the way our role in the UN should be based on principles that are not only defensible, but putting the rest of the world on defense so that it's not just about us being on defense on the UN Human Rights Council, but them being on defense as we throughout the world hold them accountable. That will be a stronger America. That will be an America that stands for human rights in every country. Now, I hope we're tougher on our friends, our friends in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, these countries that are tougher to have conversations with because, yes, we need them in the war against ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Jamaat Islami and Hamas and others, but we also need to acknowledge, just as we do, with many other countries that might be our allies on some things. As China, we have a lot of economic issues, and we see President Trump taking a tough line with them on trade. Why doesn't he do the same thing with the tough line on the ideology of the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia or the Islamists coming out of Al-Azhar, not only the Brotherhood in Egypt, but Al-Azhar and other Islamist movements across the Muslim world? Why isn't he taking a tougher line on the OIC? So I hope as we leave the UN, one of the main pathologies of the UN Human Rights Council is that it is dominated by a voting bloc of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC. That's what made it dysfunctional. Because you take Russia, China, and the OIC, and that's 70% of the world that lives under tyranny. So, Reform of that would Im would imply and demand that we marginalize, that we marginalize 
Islamist ideology and Islamist tyrants and begin to work with folks in the streets who will respect us like the people in Iran that are still marching every day. There's a graph I I saw last week that was fantastic and it showed the number of demonstrations happening through Iran week to week over the last two years. It is a straight slope up. It's increasing week to week. Iran is on the verge of marginalizing its tyrants. That's not going to happen at the UN Human Relations Council. It's going to happen on the ground in Iran. And that's where our policy should be directed. Thank God for Ambassador Haley, for Mr. Bolton, for Secretary Pompeo, and what they're doing to put the UN on notice that we will no longer give the imprimatur of the United States to the UN Human Rights Council. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This. God bless. I'll see you next week. Actually, I'll see you in two weeks. I'm taking the week off next week, going on a summer vacation with the family for a week, a little time off. Take care. We'll talk soon. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.